Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Natasha Loder. I'm the Healthcare Policy Editor at The Economist, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today to this event, uh, produced in collaboration with On Think Tanks and Southern Voice. I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to welcome a wonderful panel of health and economic policy researchers and consultants. Uh, they're joining us today from Sri Lanka, Ghana and Colombia and the UK uh, to discuss the challenges and opportunities that are posed uh, by the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines around the world. Just to set the context, uh, the coronavirus pandemic has claimed 3 million lives so far. It also cost uh, millions more their jobs and livelihoods, and we're still trying to calculate the effects of long COVID. Um, in doing so, the pandemic has exposed very deep systematic political health, uh, racial and economic uh, inequalities across the world. Now, vaccine programmes are giving hope, um, but the rollout so far has been unequal. High and middle income countries have been able to secure vaccines, uh, low income countries are very much reliant on external supply and funding and are being left behind. The World Health Organization has uh, criticized what it describes as a shocking imbalance in the distribution of coronavirus vaccines between rich and poor countries. And we know that in order to achieve uh, safe, uh, effective and equitable access, vaccines need to be produced at scale, priced affordably and allocated uh, well globally. So we need a coordinated uh, cooperative international response. So um, what are the challenges? How can we uh, try to rise to them? And how can we use this opportunity as well to create uh, more resilient healthcare systems um, and strengthen our, our approach to pandemic response in the future? So with me today is uh, Dr. Amma Fenny, uh, Dr. Dishni Wirakun, uh, Dr. Mark Eccleston-Turner, and Dr. Carlos Felipe Escobar and they're going to talk with us. And let me just introduce these uh, speakers one by one. Uh, Dr. Amma Fenny is a senior research fellow with the Institute of Statistical, Social and Economics Research at the University of Ghana. She is a West Africa Global Health Leaders Fellow at the Center on Global Health Security in Chatham House. Amma has a PhD in health economics from the Department of Public Health, Aarhus University, Denmark, and an MSc in Health, Population and Society from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome. Dr. Dushni Wirakun is Executive Director of the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka and Head of its Macroeconomic Policy Research. Her research and publications cover areas related to macroeconomic policy, regional trade integration and international economics. She has extensive experience working in policy development committees of the government of Sri Lanka, working as a consultant to international development organizations and serving as a director on the boards of corporate and academic entities in Sri Lanka. Dishni has a BSc in economics from Queen's University Belfast and an MA and a PhD in economics from the University of Manchester. Welcome to you too. Dr. Mark Eccleston-Turner is a lecturer at law in at Keele University and has been funded by the AHRC to investigate how vaccines might be fairly and equitably distributed around the world. His research interests lie in the field of pandemic preparedness and access to vaccines and the law of international organizations in the context of global health. He has published extensively on access to pandemic vaccine issues, including on issues of vaccine procurement for developing countries and equitable access models. Welcome. Uh, last but by no means least, we have uh, Dr. Carlos Felipe Escobar, an independent higher education consultant and coordinator at INOS Colombia. INOS is a joint initiative of AFIDRO and the Universidad del Bosque to contribute to the national dialogue on health based on scientific knowledge and innovation with a look to the future. INOS's aim is to connect knowledge and thinking of scientists, academics, experts and innovators in health to find solutions to the challenges faced by public policymakers, uh, the community and agents of the health system in Colombia. Welcome to you too. Well, what an exceptional panel uh, we have with us today. So first of all, let's talk about access to vaccine. Uh, we have a situation, of course, where high and income countries 
uh, are doing well and it's very much more mixed picture elsewhere. Um, we need to suppress the virus globally. So let's talk about our strategy uh, for doing so, so far. Um, I wondered if I could start with perhaps um, Dishni. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about COVAX and what it's intended uh, to do, please? Um, as far as I uh, understood uh, from what uh, the COVAX initiative um, was meant to ensure that there was um, some degree of um, equitable access to um, vaccines for the uh, low-income countries, uh, and the intentions behind the initiative is to ensure that at least 20% uh, of our populations get vaccinated uh, before the broader sort of uh, populations in, in uh, more richer countries uh, uh, are able to uh, access and, and uh, get themselves vaccinated. So the, the intentions behind that initiative was good. Um, it was soliciting funds from um, donors and multilateral agencies, et cetera. But my sense is that, um, uh, you know, aside from the funding, uh, getting adequate supplies of vaccines has been the problem. So in, in uh, my part of the world, in, in South Asia, for instance, um, COAX has really not had any uh, major impact in, in terms of making vaccines available so far. So to date, um, that initiative has really not worked um, in, in terms of its original um, objectives. I wonder if I could turn to you, Mark. You um, have quite a lot of expertise on equitable distribution of vaccines. Could you tell me how you rate the attempt uh, to use COVAX so far, and you know how you think it's doing? So I think it's it's important to recognise that COVAX essentially had two aims. So COVAX is part of the the the, the ACT accelerator from WHO. Um, and it has two aims, essentially. The first is to, to accelerate the research and development of vaccines for COVID-19. And the second is to act as a procurement agent, um, purchasing vaccines and distributing them to lower middle income countries, primarily. On the first strand, I think we can say that that COVAX has been a success. Um, we have vaccines, um, the, the, the leg, leg time of development with the, the COVID-19 vaccine is the fastest ever vaccine developed, under a year from discovery of virus to, to vaccines in arms. That's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and that comes about through, through COVAX, but also multilateral agencies and, and governments around the world heavily subsidizing vaccine manufacturers to do research and development into COVID-19 vaccines, to provide an economic incentive to research into this area and to accelerate research into this area. What COVAX has been a lot less successful at doing is successfully procuring and um, distributing those vaccines around the world. And as it currently stands, the United Kingdom government has distributed more vaccines in the UK than COVAX has distributed globally. Um, but also, when we look at the when we look at the target which Covax set itself, twenty percent um, vaccine coverage in low and middle income countries around the world. If the UK government, uh, by the end of this year, if the UK government had set itself a target of twenty percent of the UK population immunised by the end of this year, that would have been considered quite a low target for us to hit. So there was inequity in the target, never mind in the execution of the target. But it's very clear that the execution of the target is going to be missed. It, it doesn't appear that COVAX is going to distribute anywhere close to the number of doses which are required to, to immunise 20% of, of, of the world's population. Emma, I wonder if I could ask you, I know that um, Ghana was one of the first countries, in fact, it was the first country, I think, to get a uh, distribution of vaccines from COVAX. What's the view of COVAX um, in Ghana? And on the extent to which it's felt that uh, the country can rely on COVAX to supply its vaccine needs. Thank you very much. Um, so around January, we were very much aware that we we're going to be part of this COVAX facility. And um, by February, we had about 600,000 doses coming. Um, as we speak, the second dose was supposed to have been released two weeks ago for those who had the first, first time doses but we've been told that there's been a delay by a month because there's still no vaccines in sight, really. And so reflecting on that and what it means for the rest of the country, because this is just 600,000 um, doses and there are almost 17 million you know, adults who are capable of being vaccinated waiting on the sidelines. So again, you just see how huge the challenges 
And um, there's really no guarantee that we'll have half of the population um, vaccinated, as the government said, when the, um, when the COVAX facility actually um, rolled out in, in February. So these are some of the things that we are reflecting on now. And thank you. And Carlos, could you perhaps give me um, some reflection on what the view is um, in, in your part of the world in Colombia and perhaps in the region as well? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I would say that first I would like to highlight that uh, um, COVAX is, um, I think, a, a very, very, very innovative approach uh, to these kind of challenges. And, and the, first, the first thing that I would like to highlight of this effort, uh, both of Gavi and uh, CEPI and the World Health Organization, is that uh, it's a very, very, very powerful uh, uh, tool. Um, the fact that it has not gift to give to di to this date the the number of uh, of uh, let's say deliveries that we would like to have uh, I would say it should not be the matter of 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 of, of concern. I think that uh, this a program of this kind in, in which you put together uh, people supporting from different. Uh, Let's say uh, grounds uh, like uh, like uh, let's say private uh, donors, but also uh, public donors and and states. Uh, let's say rich states helping to finance access to 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 uh, emerging countries and and uh, and, and less uh, low income countries. It's, it's a very very interesting uh, development in te in terms of cooperation. So. The big question, if in my point of view, should be how we can strengthen and make it work faster and better. In 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 my country, we have already received a very important number of of uh, Covax uh, uh, vaccine, and 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 I think that uh, at least uh, regarding the 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 I would say deep research that uh, the the World Bank presented. Uh, last week uh, about uh, COVAX and, and uh, some strategies um, uh, aiming to finish the pandemics in, in March 22. I think that we, we, we should join effort in, in, in this way. I think that definitely trying to support the tools and the strategies that COVAX has placed in, 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 the, in, the, in the playing field of, of health. It's very, very, very important. You know, uh, at this stage, uh, what we have uh, with the funding that uh, COVAS has uh, has had, we would get, let's say, around 16% of, of, of population uh, vaccinated. Um, the, the initial target, as, as Mark mentioned, was uh, 20%, so very close to, to get uh, this point. And in, the, uh, and in the economic projections of the additional funding to reach a 30%, uh, uh, covering uh, would be needed an additional four billion. So this four billion does not seem to be a huge amount as related to the cost that uh, uh, COVID and and uh, being late in this process is is is, is supposing to every e economy. And this definitely seems to be the fastest way in which we can really get the targets we can. So so I think that we we need to raise awareness on what COVID and the power that COVID can provide to solve these issues in, 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 in the fastest time that we, we want and make the question uh, put in the, in the process of what, what needs to be doing to be working. There are things that we need to solve relating uh, logistics and distribution related uh, uh, trade and, and export. Uh, let's say, so, so let's try to focus on this. But uh, in any case, I think that uh, this is a highly innovative, collaborative, and uh, focus on equity uh, uh, mechanism that uh, I think we need to embrace and recognize and celebrate. All right, then. So let's um, try and unpick a little bit what are the supply challenges really for low-income countries and why perhaps COVAX hasn't been able to obtain doses. Um, Dushni, I wonder if you could um, talk to me about why it is rich countries have managed to kind of sew up so much of the vaccine supply. Well, my um, understanding was that COVAX was in, in some sense supposed to um, source the, the, the vaccines and, and then ensure that, you know, the, the uh, access is a little more 
bit more equitable. But in practice, um, what uh, I think has happened is that countries have pre-ordered um, uh, vaccinations in, in dealing directly with the, the vaccine uh, manufacturers. And, and at the initial outset, when there was still some uh, uncertainty about the efficacy of the vaccinations that were being um, uh, produced, you know, they tended to hedge their bets and, and order uh, vaccines well in excess of, of what was um, required. So to, to us, um, coming from uh, uh, middling, middle-income, uh, low-income country perspective, it seems that the financial resources were there, countries, uh, richer countries were able to therefore place orders well ahead um, of the uh, developing countries. And when you look at the available um, data today on, on um, the share of um, available vaccines that have already been pre-ordered, you can see that uh, the advanced um, uh, countries have uh, got more than, you know, something in the range of 55 to 60 percent of available stocks have been pre-ordered uh, by advanced countries. And the number, the share for um, you know, the middle and low-income countries is, is around 15 uh, percent. So we started from um, in, in some sense uh, from a disadvantaged um, position and, and quite frankly, it's getting worse because as um, Amar mentioned, even the case is similar here that uh, with the available vaccine producers, uh, developing countries also um, joined the queue, uh, ordered um, their stocks, but then there have been further supply disruptions and, and those stocks have not materialized. So even um, in Sri Lanka, we went through um, the same experience that Ghana has obviously gone through of having gone through one um, dose uh, of vaccinations and then we don't have supplies for the second follow-up dose. Oh, very concerning. So Mark, I wonder if you could perhaps provide a different uh, perspective on this. I mean, rich countries have basically pre-ordered it all. That's the problem. It, essentially, yes. Um, High-income countries have made use of what are called advanced purchase agreements. So. Um, Around a year ago from now, when, when vaccine research was beginning, high-income countries negotiated these advanced purchase agreements that stated, in the event you, you make a vaccine which is manufactured and licensed, we will purchase X amount of them for this amount of money, and we want to have priority access. So these agreements have been were seen to be used in 2009 H1N1 as well, which, which allowed a very small number of high-income countries to dominate um, access in this way. So, so whilst high-income countries like the UK and, and the US and, and Canada and so on were negotiating these agreements to get themselves into a priority position, COVAX didn't even exist at that time. You know, we were still trying to sort out the governance structures of, of how COVAX would operate, trying to raise funds for it to, 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 to try and begin purchasing. So COVAX was, was quite slow off the market and, and was, was, was already behind high-income countries who had a long hit, uh, who had a wealth of experience of negotiating these sorts of agreements, but also had the large amount of capital ready to go to negotiate and, and purchase these, um, these vaccines through these advanced purchase agreements. So the problem, one of the problems was that we hadn't already set up a COVAX in peacetime, for want of a, a better word. We knew a pandemic would happen in the future. We knew vaccines would be the route out of it. We knew high-income countries would dominate procurement because that's what they did in 2009. And in that peacetime, we didn't do anything to make sure a system like COVAX was already in place to purchase and distribute vaccines quickly to low- and middle-income countries. Another factor that um, I wonder is part of this is that um, wouldn't it also be fair to say that a lot of low income countries were less interested in the first two vaccines out of the gate, Pfizer and Moderna, and were kind of hoping that the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, would be the vaccine of choice because it was cheaper and easier to distribute. I wonder if I could ask you, Amma, would that be a fair thing to say that actually, um, you know, Ghana was more looking towards the Astra vaccine um, as a sort of vaccine of choice than perhaps the Pfizer or Moderna? Yes, um, so reflecting on how this whole thing has transpired, um, when, when the initial vaccines came out, we knew that logistically we were not ready for such. You know, we are talking about temperatures less than two degrees Celsius, 
and we don't really have the capacity to deal with such infrastructural demands of, of, of those kinds of vaccines. And so definitely Astra was the way to go. And again, because it was cheaper and um, we know right from the start of um, the pandemic, we've had to rely on worldwide facilities to even do testing and contract tracing and all the other processes that have gone on. So a lot of funding issues have, have been part of the story. And, and the fact that we were really late on the table when it came to negotiations, because at that point we had also other challenges facing us as nations, our economies were also struggling. I mean, Ghana's economic, economic growth, I mean, contracted by almost 6% at that time. So you have all these different um, challenges being faced and really vaccines were not the focus at the time um, other countries were going forward with these negotiations. But now we, we realize that we, we, need to, we needed to have done this earlier. Unfortunately, COVAX came in a bit too late and we can see the, the effects of that now. I mean, with hindsight, would you have thought that perhaps a bilateral arrangement between Ghana and another country would have been a good idea? Or perhaps should the African Union have formed its vaccine task force sooner? Yes, so the CDC, African CDC, and really the African Union has been very vocal and, and very phenomenal in, in getting us to this point. And really right from the start, there was this concerted effort to work together as a continent and not just one country. You know, so then we, we enjoy economies of scale, bigger markets, bigger voices, bigger bargaining power. You know, so a lot was left on the shoulders of AU, for example, and, and the negotiations really were a bit late with, with that um, model, I, I, I would say. If we're sort of homing in a bit then on the Astra vaccine as being one of the kind of vaccines of choice for global distribution, then I think probably we need to turn to talk about what's happening at the largest supplier of this vaccine to low income countries, which is the Serum Institute in India. Um, and this uh, company has had to cut exports uh, abroad. The government has forced it to do so. Um, and that has meant that uh, COVAX is very short uh, of doses. Um, Mark, I wonder if I could turn uh, to you and perhaps also to Dushni. Um, let me just ask, what's, what's the impact, Dushni, of uh, you know, India's rising domestic need for vaccine on other countries? Uh, it's quite huge, um, frankly. And, and uh, I think, again, um, pretty much the same experience that uh, even uh, here in South Asia, we waited for the AstraZeneca um, because the, the logistics of uh, some of the other vaccines uh, for you know, storage and, and uh, refrigeration, all of that seems just uh, uh, quite uh, complex. So. Uh, for instance, the initial um, uh, contribution uh, from COVAX uh, initiative came in, and then um, India had its uh, neighborhood sort of, you know, uh, vaccine diplomacy is what we call it. They donated um, about 500,000 doses of vaccines to Bangladesh, to Sri Lanka, to Nepal um, uh, at the at the outset, and. Uh, most of these countries had then placed uh, orders with the Serum Institute. Um, and I think cost factors also played a role in that. Uh, unfortunately, and quite understandably now, as India's um, COVID situation has sort of you know, escalated dramatically, um, India is diverting whatever um, supplies it has to its, uh, to its own citizens. Um, and the impact on the rest of the um, countries that had placed these orders is that, you know, now we're scrambling around trying to um, look for alternative um, uh, vaccines um, and, and sort of the preferred vaccines have been the, the Russian um, vaccine, etc. Um, so it's, it is uh, somewhat of a waiting game. Um, and I think to some extent also it um, undermines 
confidence of, of uh, local populations in terms of the, the vaccinations, because when too many, um, you know, uh, vaccination options are thrown open, uh, you know, we people start to speculate, well, is, is, is this good? Is it bad? You know, who has approved it? So um, I think the, the uptake also, uh, to some extent, gets impacted um, because of that process. Thank you. And so, Mark, I think, you know, when we think about, um, you know, contracts being overridden uh, by national governments in times of crisis like this, I mean, do we need to kind of rethink uh, our trade regulations? I mean, is there some kind of, um, are there some kind of pandemic rules that need to apply when we uh, start talking about the kind of vital health goods that need to move around the world during a health crisis like this? I think the, the 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 international system doesn't necessarily have a solution to, to that problem. We're talking about the internal sovereignty of a country, and you know the the, the WTO or the, or the WHO are going to uh, to really struggle to actually place any restrictions on that internal sovereignty. The fundamental problem comes down to a limited global supply, uh, a limited manufacturing capacity, and it's limited in two senses of the world. Uh, of, it's limited in two senses. In the first sense, it's limited in that we cannot produce enough enough doses to satisfy our global demand right now and secondly the manufacturing capacity is global is limited geographically there are there are there there are very few manufacturing plants around the world which are actually able and able in terms of technological sense but also in a legal sense to manufacture these 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 doses so the 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 um the manufacturing platform which the AstraZeneca vaccine uses, the, the recombinant um, adenoviral vaccine, there is there is manufacturing capacity around the world in the, in um, on that manufacturing plant. But the problem was the University of Oxford partnered exclusively with AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca have only sub-licensed the right to manufacture this vaccine to the Serum Institute in India, which means that actually we have a very limited global manufacturing capacity now, which is largely based in the US, the UK, a bit in Belgium, but largely through the Serum Institute in India. The Serum Institute in India is the world's largest vaccine manufacturer, has a wealth of experience in this field. But the problem is if you place so much of your emphasis on manufacturing in one facility or in one country, if that's, that manufacturing capacity gets cut off for whatever reason, and in this case we're talking about export controls, then that can have huge global ramifications. What we need is a diversification of manufacturing capacity, both in terms of who makes it and where it's made. But I mean, as I understand it, AstraZeneca had licensed it to about nine locations, which is quite a lot considering in the year that they had available, wouldn't you say? Well, the, the problem was that the exclusivity part came at the, the Oxford AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca level. There were discussions in the early stages, as far as I understand it, that actually this, this manufacturing would go open source rather than be given as an exclusive license to AstraZeneca. And therefore, anyone with the platform technology would have a license and permission to manufacture the Oxford jab. If that had been the case, we may be in a situation where we had a, a much larger manufacturing pool from which to procure from. And then how would the tech transfer have worked because Astra would have or Oxford would have had to sort of, you know, essentially transfer the cell lines and the ability to make it. I mean, that presumably would also have had to have been done. Yes. Yeah, that would have required transfer of technology. Absolutely. Which is which is one of the two. Um, impediments to to manufacturing at the moment. I know that you you have become interested in the IP element of it, which I'm sure we're going to come on to discuss. And essentially, there are two possible impediments here. The first is intellectual property, and the second is transfer of technology. And we need a solution which addresses both of those impediments where they exist. Okay, well, maybe we'll come on to that in a, in a bit. And so what you're saying really, though, is also that um, you know, regionally, we just don't have enough uh, manufacturing facilities around the world. And that's obviously been something uh, that's been a problem in Africa, which just does not have um, really any such manufacturing facilities and has relied um, very much on India. Um, Anna, I wonder if I could ask you to talk about um, this you know, thought that has now arisen um, in many countries across Africa and within the CDC, I know John Nkengasong is pushing this, that it really is long past time for Africa to invest seriously in vaccine manufacturing on the continent. Um, tell me a bit more about this idea and how it might work. Yes, so a lot has happened and um, this is catch up time for Africa really because way back in 2007, there was a manufacturing plan 
to specifically boost the pharmaceutical industry. The idea was to build a local capacity of the pharmaceutical industries across the continent. So this plan was there in 2007. Many member states ignored it or did really little to facilitate that um, partnership. And now we are faced with a situation where 99% of our vaccines are imported. And, and it's, it's a sheer volume of um, immunization coverage gaps that we are dealing with. We also have issues to do with regulations, standards, and, and the investment in manufacturing itself, we know it's the very huge, huge margin, you know, and, and, and the barriers, non-trade barriers, trade barriers are extensive. So right now there's an appetite for countries to start pushing local manufacturing. And again, we have to do it as a continent because we are talking about moving at scale, encouraging investors to come because they can see their investments yielding profits. And so there's a lot of appetite right now for local manufacturing. We, I think Africans do not want to be the, the last in the line again. I mean, for such pandemics, we've had Ebola. Um, Ebola, thankfully was restricted to three countries in West Africa, but it should have given us some sense of urgency to prepare for a time like this. And somehow we missed the opportunity. So again, COVID gives us that opportunity to start looking internally at what we can do. And there's been a lot of push, a lot of discussion about it. And recently the Africa CDC supported by African Union um, has had an MOU with CEPI to start boosting um, investments in R&D and manufacturing in Africa. And then encourage more clinical trials here as well. We just have 2% of clinical trials um, globally being done in Africa. And so the gaps are really wide and a lot can be done, a lot can be done. Carlos, I wonder if I could ask you about local manufacturing. Is this something that is seen as being more of a priority now since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in Latin America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that Mark uh, uh, put it very clear, very clear. We have a, a very uh, small uh, cap global capacity of, of uh, manufacturing uh, uh, concentrated in, in, uh, in just a few countries. So of course it should be uh, a global concern to, to, to build capacities uh, everywhere in, in, in every region and, uh, and uh, explore different mechanisms in which these uh, uh, manufacturing capacities could be uh, set in place uh, as soon as possible. I'm afraid that uh, it would be difficult to think that, that they will be ready for this for this moment. I, I, I think that uh, definitely at least what has shown and uh, and uh, and uh, in the in the let's say uh, uh, um, uh, projections on the building capacity, etc. It, it, it's shown that uh, um, trying to start from from zero building these manufacturing capacities in in different regions. Uh, 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 will not be in, in time and uh, that if we want to get this target that we have of 60% of the global population vaccinated to get uh, uh, the, the, the global uh, immunity uh, moment uh, definitely is uh, supporting the, the, the process right now and trying to move them faster is, is the, seems to be the best choice. And, and let me highlight because, because, because also one of the things that are very important is uh, the kind of shortage that we are experiencing in uh, in raw materials and and uh, and uh, and uh, that needed for the for the vaccine uh, production, you know, uh, around 100 today, around 100 um, uh, of these uh, materials uh, are uh, getting in shortage in different uh, uh, regions. For example, for for the production of mRNA. Uh, vaccine, some lipids uh, uh, are, are absolutely necessary for the production and there is a shortage in, in this. So uh, we have to understand this because, because uh, definitely uh, making easy the, the, also the, the, the export and import and involving world trade and world custom organizations to make things work definitely flawlessly in this in this issue is also absolutely necessary and as well we're having well something like biases and and 
and uh, vials and and uh, and uh, many other uh, supplies that definitely are are necessary. I think that also understanding that we need to integrate not only the vaccine point. The vaccine is just a point in, in, in the whole issue, but we are having, for example, in, in, in emerging and developing countries, a big issue related to, to the logistical of the, of the vaccine. And that's why we, uh, we could have some, some vaccine. Uh, and I think that Dushni uh, touched that point or, or Amy, uh, we can have some vaccine, but if we, have, we don't have the, the logistics to guarantee the, the, well, the, the, the freeze of the, of the whole chain, we are going, going to lose, uh, lose everything. So uh, I think that uh, approaches like, like, uh, like the one that we have had, from the accelerator, um, uh, uh, which COVAX is part of this, and also all, all other other uh, initiatives like pipes are very important because they are they are understanding the process in a comprehensive and uh, I would say chain value model rather than just a, a single and punctual intervention in, in in vaccine. This is not a vaccine issue. This is a whole health issue. Yeah. Involves many, many, many more, more components to 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 move ahead in the in the way we want to uh, uh, move. Uh, here in the region, definitely there are initiatives. We recently have, uh, and, and and it's it's still in discussion, uh, uh, an act that is proposing a, a, a new, let's say, big uh, uh, pharma public base uh, uh, facility that should be, let's say, set in place and th that should guarantee pharmaceutical security. That's, that has been the, let's say, the, the idea and uh, that uh, to provide big funds to this, uh, the capacities for research, knowledge transfer, development, uh, uh, they should involve in the logistic and distribution, et cetera. Um, we are very, very, uh, let's say, aware of these kind of initiatives. Because, because if something has shown uh, us uh, pandemic is that uh, uh, the speedness of response that we, uh, we got uh, in research uh, 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 and development and having the solution was incredibly huge and was not based in, let's say, this sort of big public-based and uh, government-based uh, uh, laboratories, but in the, in the, in the, in the way we involved both uh, privates and and and, uh, and and public efforts in, in trying to move that. Yes, that's very interesting. Um, I was thought it was interesting that you picked up on the kind of uh, very stretched global supply chains because when you talk to the sector, people who work in the industry about what can be done to increase the production of vaccines, they point to shortages of raw material and ingredients, and they say that you know they've expanded from three billion to potentially ten to fourteen billion, and that's what's limiting global vaccine supply. However. There is a contrasting argument, which is saying, no, actually, IP is really the limiting factor here. And if we were to um, waive IP rights, that actually we could boost vaccine production. Mark, I wonder if I could turn to you and tell me, you know, what this discussion is about a TRIPS waiver. Can you explain what that is and why you think it's necessary? Sure. So it's first of all important to recognize what a patent is. So a patent is a, a legal right and it's a, a, an exclusionary right. It's the right to prevent other people from doing things with your technology. So if I hold a patent over something, it prevents you from making that same that patented product for a set period, 20 years typically. Now, the the, the TRIPS agreement um, is the, the, the World Trade Organization multilateral agreement in respect of intellectual property, which says that patents must be available on pharmaceutical products for a minimum of at least 20 years. So all members of the WTO are legally obliged to offer intellectual property protection in their territory for at least 20 years. And we have seen previously that intellectual property has posed a significant barrier to access to medicines, particularly the particularly antiretrovirals for HIV. Um, and and um, in those circumstances, it was very clear that um, patents were the predominant barrier. But vaccines are different. 
tablets. It's important to recognize that. So when it comes to making drugs, oral solid tablets that you take, you know, either the antiretrovirals people living with HIV take or the paracetamol you took before we went on this call because you had a bit of a headache, they are really quite simple to make. And the only thing that stops generic manufacturers around the world from making carbon copy replicas of, of you know, any antiretroviral, any oral solid drug is intellectual property. That's the only barrier that's there. Vaccines are different. Vaccines are very complex things. There is limited manufacturing capacity around the world, and it's not like making drugs. Vaccines are biologicals. They're large biological materials, and they're quite complex to, to make, and you need specific experience and specific technology in order to work the, 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 the materials. Now, when it comes to, to the, the technology which we're talking about for COVID-19 vaccines, it is likely that both intellectual property and technology poses a barrier here. One thing we do know, is that the, the platforms which these vaccines are made on, the mRNA platform and the, the, the antiviral um, vaccine platform for the AstraZeneca vaccine, do contain a multitude of intellectual property protections. Now, what the TRIPS waiver, so there was a proposed TRIPS waiver from South Africa and India. Now, what that proposes to do is to give member states of the World Trade Organization permission to waive those intellectual property protections in their territory in order to give what we call legal certainty to vaccine manufacturers. So when we're talking about the mRNA vaccine, for example, there are hundreds of different patents over this technology. And you need to have a legal team which can wade through each one of these patents which has been filed in your territory, work out which one is and which one is not directly relevant to your vaccine manufacturing, negotiate an agreement to license and use that technology with the patent holder, across a range of technologies in order to make one mRNA vaccine. Now that takes time, that takes a lot of legal expertise and it's difficult. And if just one of those negotiations fail, you no longer have permission to make mRNA vaccines in your territory. What a TRIPS waiver would do, would give legal certainty, would say, don't worry about those negotiations. Don't worry about wading through these vast patent thickets to find out what is and is infringement in this territory. Get on with manufacturing. You're not going to get sued. Because you might be in a circumstance where there might not be a patent for an mRNA vaccine filed in Sierra Leone. There may be, there may not be. But what we need is a, man, a hypothetical manufacturer based in Sierra Leone to know that if they start manufacturing mRNA vaccines tomorrow, they're not going to get sued for it because they didn't miss an mRNA patent application. So what we're worried about in, in law is what's called the, the chilling effect, where even if it's not illegal for you to do something, where you go, actually, I'm a bit worried, I might have missed something in the landscape, I just won't risk it. What the TRIPS waiver will do is give that legal certainty to manufacturers that they have the lawful permission to use this technology in their territory. Now, just a TRIPS waiver and just removing those IP impediments will not allow a manufacturer in Sierra Leone, for example, to start making these vaccines tomorrow. We also have a problem. What we also need is transfer of technology. You need to understand how to work this, this, this technology. So a major barrier with vaccine, expanding vaccine manufacturing is know-how, production know-how, knowing how to run this technology, transfer of cell lines, transfer of know-how. And we need both of these things to happen in parallel to give the legal certainty which manufacturers need, but also to give the actual know-how and technology so that manufacturing capacity can be expanded. The problem we have is that the TRIPS waiver has been blocked through the WTO by a number of high-income countries who do not wish to see this technological capacity transferred to low- and middle-income countries. And there's also been some recent concerns expressed around essentially technology security where there, there are concerns about this technology being accessible by manufacturers based in China and Russia. Got it, got it. Um, Dishni, um, do, do, I understand that there may be a manufacturer in Bangladesh, is that right, who is saying that they have excess capacity that's unused? Well, I think um, to some extent, uh, I think Mark has explained that, you know, it, it's Bangladesh has a, a growing pharmaceutical um, industrial base, uh, but whether they have the... Um, technological know-how and, and capacity to um, enter into um, vaccination production, uh, I am not um, very certain, but I have seen um, quite a lot of um, Bangladeshi uh, pharmaceutical producers, manufacturers saying, well, give us the licenses, we can do it. So uh, I, I think the um, 
concern also is that if you do away with some of the um, trips uh, and, and get waivers on them, the cost uh, implications are also there that they'd be a little um, more affordable um, as well as uh, increasing capacity. So uh, the alternative um, to uh, not having access to those um, uh, licenses is that they are now trying to innovate and produce vaccinations themselves. And then that's a process that's gonna take a very, very long time. Um, and quite frankly, uh, time is uh, of essence. So um, I, I think to that extent, um, the, the motion by India and, and South Africa to get a waiver so that third parties can, can, have, uh, can be licensed to produce was uh, uh, to, uh, ensure that uh, they can um, provide these vaccinations at a cheaper uh, cost as well to uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see that happening um, because for many of these vaccine uh, producers, they have to get a return on their investments, even though a lot of public money uh, from rich countries have actually gone in rather than uh, uh, private funds. Let's turn to vaccine hesitancy. Um, one of the things that we've seen in certainly the countries with access to vaccines is that the worse your outbreak, um, the keener people are to um, take the vaccines. I mean, I wonder as we reflect on a year where, you know, towards the end of the year, we may have 10 billion doses of vaccine. I wonder if you could kind of reflect on the extent to which in your region you think that vaccine hesitancy is going to play a role in um, causing problems for you know, health systems in the rollout. Um, maybe I'll turn to you, Amma. Yes, so um, currently we haven't had the devastation deaths for COVID as other regions. And, and so we do have, um, um, quite a number of people willing to take um, the vaccines, which is very encouraging. We, within about a month when we got the COVAX facility in Ghana, we had done quite a number of um, vaccinations. And this is because historically in Ghana, we, we are used to taking vaccines right from birth. So you have a BCG, you have yellow fever, you have quite a number of vaccines that you are taking through your lifetime. And so vaccines are not, um, they don't pose a challenge in themselves really. And, and quickly the Ghana Health Service and the Ministry of Health had policies in place to communicate that this was effective and it was, it was to help boost our economy and get back our economy to, to, to where it was supposed to be. So I, I think that the hesitancy will come when we see, we continue to see delays in the second doses being released and the information around what happens to those who have the first dose and there's no second dose, you know. So we really need to quickly work on that kind of messaging to encourage people to go for the next dose when it comes. That for me is, is, is the key, the messaging around the second dose and availability. And, and Dushni, thank you. Dushni, uh, um, do you see uh, much of a problem down the line with vaccine hesitancy? Um, uh, World Bank did a survey, carried out a survey across South Asia on uh, vaccine uptake, and they've said it's, and the, their results suggest it's pretty good. Um, it it's ranges from a low of about 65%, and then that's Pakistan, to a high of about 85% of the population in, in countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. So, the initial sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, engagement with the vaccination process, I think for um, South Asia is pretty good. Now, going forward, I see some problems and, and two things. One is related to um, the fact that, you know, the, we had got used to the AstraZeneca as, as the sort of, you know, vaccine of choice and that the frontline workers and, you know, the initial doses were um, administered and now, we are not uh, receiving the stock. So alternative options are being looked at. So now there is a mix and match uh, of uh, vaccination um, uh, from Russia, 
uh, alongside uh, AstraZeneca. So, you know, there's some degree of confusion. Uh, and second is we are also receiving um, media reports on blood clots related to certain vaccinations and, and concerns uh, that some of these uh, vaccinations have side effects. So there I see a problem uh, because there will be, and I, I you know from anecdotal evidence, I know that people are raising questions, well, is it safe? Um, do we need to take it? Um, second uh, issue, and this is, I think, a little specific to um, certain countries, is that there is also the vaccination sort of, you know, diplomacy and, and donations, and there is pressure on some uh, regulatory, uh, medical regulatory authorities to fast track uh, approvals. Uh, for instance, uh, Sri Lanka's uh, offer of, of um, donations of uh, vaccines developed in China, um, but uh, there was uh, delays or in, in terms of the regulatory, um, medical regulatory authorities signing off on it, but the government was very keen um, to accept this 600,000 of um, uh, uh, vaccines that were gifted. So it's come into the country, but Sri Lankans are not queuing up to get that vaccination. So, you know, it's becoming uh, more complex as we go along. So by year end, I really don't know whether we would still say that 85% of the population is queuing up to get its vaccines or, you know, that level of confidence uh, is going to be much lower. Well, hopefully the WHO will come in with a decision on the Chinese vaccines in the near future, which would hopefully raise confidence. Carlos, let me turn to you. Um, do you have any views on vaccine hesitancy in Colombia? Let me let me address uh, for for some seconds. Uh, I think that uh, Mark and uh, Dushni touched before about IP. And uh, and uh, then I go to to your question. So um, just to, to to put it in frame, how we, I think we are understanding it, uh, this this discussion, um, um, the the whole IP discussion, uh, let's say, behaves to what we call the the research and, and innovation uh, system or ecosystem in in the country. So first. It, it is it, this this issue of, of vaccine is part of a, a highly highly higher level um, issue which is health security so so currently we are discussing an act of a healthcare reform and this healthcare includes a whole chapter regarding um, health security and it means how to secure for future situations like this um, uh, the provision and the, let's say secureness of uh, healthcare professionals big issue in in, in uh, uh, everywhere so uh, new measures how to 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 put it uh, right and to make it work issues related to of course pharmacy uh, pharma and uh, vaccine etc issues related to uh, supplies general supplies oxygen right now we are having shortages in in oxygen and many other things issues related to facilities so i think that this kind of comprehensive view and understanding on the hair of a health issue is the right approach to uh, involve the discussion. It's not only vaccine, it's not only pharma, it's the whole issue of, of health, first thing. And the th second thing is that at the same time, there's a whole proposal for IP uh, system strengthening, uh, which is uh, it's going to be presented in the next couple of months. It's a compass, is the, uh, it's a policy, a whole policy strengthening related to 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 IP, and the and the focus is uh, we understand that we are not living and we are not going to live anymore in independent autonomous nations in which you can make everything. This issue and mainly in health is an interdependent issue. You need to be, you need to have capacities in the country, but you are going to still be dependent in certain ways on research, on raw materials, on production, etc., on the international states. So you need to be enoughly strength in your country, in your location. You need to have and build capacities, mainly human resource, uh, manufacturing, and, and many other, let's say, facilities, while also guaranteeing that you are going to be attractive and you are going to be, let's say, make a a flow conversation of cooperation between other nations and between public and private. That's the kind of focus because one of the things we are afraid is that at this stage, many voices saying, okay, we need to stop these things of 
patents, et cetera, et cetera, and, and short it, we, we, we need to think not only short it, but also in the long term of the implication and make it uh, readiness and learn the lessons for the future. So I'm going to try and wrap this amazing discussion up a little bit, and I'd like you all to just perhaps think about what lessons you have learned personally for the future out of this pandemic about preparing uh, for the next one. And I wonder if you could uh, perhaps tell me in one point or two points very quickly what those are. I'm going to turn to you first, Mark. So I think one of the, the most important things we can take out of this is that that the 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 um, the systems like COVAX needed to be in place before emergencies happened rather than trying to to put them together whilst responding to an outbreak so preparedness is is as much is is needs to be about systems rather than just about about um strengthening individual healthcare. Uh, Dushni I wonder if you could comment um, actually, I, I would just reiterate what uh, Mark said, because I, I think, uh, you know, the, the issue goes to the heart of uh, global um, governance on equity. And, and, and you know, uh, if we don't have the mechanisms and processes in place, uh, you know, we will face the next pandemic in, in, in the same way. Um, so I think, uh, to me also, the priorities to be prepared, um, you know, at national level, we can do our bit, but at the multilateral level, these things have to be um, sorted uh, through efforts uh, from all corners of the world. Ama. So I think I'd go with what Mark and Dishni have said, looking at the role of multilateral agencies in this whole process. We have seen certain failures, especially from the, the WHOs and the multilateral agencies that we thought will make sure um, there would be equitable access to vaccines if it came to push, you know. So again, how do we strengthen these multilateral agencies to ensure that these processes happen? And how much faith can we have in these multilateral agencies? Uh, the gaps are very visible. And within our own continents, we also see the drive to come together as, as one to, to, to work on a scale, to, to push for one voice, in, in this whole process. You can't do it alone as a country. And we can see how important these collaborations and partnerships are becoming going forward. And lastly, Carlos. Well, I would say that um, uh, uh, we really need to celebrate uh, the kind of uh, new cooperation um, initiative and mechanism that have been developed in this uh, situation. We will, of course, need to be absolutely convinced that we need to build on them and be ready for the next uh, big situation that the that the world uh, faces but definitely uh, i think that we need to celebrate uh, the fastness and the quality of the results from researches and uh, and and development of solutions the quality of the efforts that governments multilateral agencies have done the involvement of industry but I think that we need to deeply, deeply reflect on the, the behavior of the individuals. We need to talk a lot more about behavioral economics of health and the way people are, uh, have behaved in this, in the, in this pandemic uh, as part of the solution, as part and responsible of health. Today, today, this day, Wednesday, the worst uh, number of new cases uh, and death and the, the third wave is the, definitely the, the, the worst in the worst situation in our country. 100% occupancy of using, uh, ICUs in most of the big cities, and we are having the largest uh, uh, street uh, riots and manifestations of unions of, uh, uh, of different people, teachers, etc., uh, manifesting in, in, uh, against the government. That is going to be definitely devastating for, for, for the health system in, in, in a couple, two or three weeks after we have this, this, this issue. So we need to learn a lot and to talk about the individual responsibility in healthcare issues, not only focus on blaming and asking responses from governments, politicians, industry, and we are not asking what has been my mistake and what I, I could done uh, better in, during all these issues. 
Well, that's uh, an interesting thought to end on. Um, I'm hearing you know, notes of optimism uh, about the multilateral uh, potential of the future, but also a reminder from you, Carlos, um, that actually there are many levels of society that have a responsibility um, to act and also to prepare for the next pandemic, don't they? Well, look, um, we could dis continue the discussion all afternoon. That's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Um, you will find more information about our panelists today on the website, so please do go and check out their work. And please, let's continue this conversation afterwards about vaccine equity, because as you can see, um, there's many opportunities for us to do better. If you would like to join the conversation on Twitter, um, the hashtag is uh, hashtag RSA vaccine. And thank you again to uh, Amma, Mark, Dishni and Carlos uh, for joining us. And thank you all for watching. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.